0: Hi guys, and welcome to the first episode of Texas 1031. Uh, this is going to be a true crime podcast where I'll be talking about all of the good crimes that have occurred in the great and sometimes shitty state of Texas. Um, I'll be your host. I'm Hannah. I might be having some other people join the podcast in you know, like later episodes, but for now, it is just me. I'm a huge true crime lover and I really enjoy learning and kind of studying behavioral and forensic uh, psychology. So, reading about these cases and listening to other podcasts and watching pretty much every you know, investigation discovery or documentary or whatever. Uh, Those are my main hobbies, basically. Um, And for those who don't know, 1031 is actually a police code for crime in progress. And I also chose it because it's the date of Halloween, so I kind of had to, you know what I mean? Um, There are different codes that stand for different things in different states, and I've seen a bunch of different, you know... Uh, interpretations of codes. And so this is the one that I found most consistent and I just thought it would be different. It's better than picking a name that rhymes with crime, I guess. I don't know. No offense to those people who do have those podcasts because I'm sure they're great. Um, I do have an Instagram set up for this podcast. It is called Texas 1031 Podcast. It is all spelled out. There's no dashes or spaces or anything like that. No capital letters literally just string all the words together. And um, if you want to follow me there for photos and miscellaneous updates for each episode, I'll be posting them there. I will not have any other social media for the podcast, but you can also email me at texas1031podcast at gmail.com with any questions, corrections, recommendations, that kind of thing. This podcast will be a bit uh, unfiltered for the most part. I will, you know, have some curse words thrown in there. Um, If I was with someone else, I feel like the banter would be a little bit better and the discussion would be a bit better, but I can't seem to uh, nail down a time to meet with my friends and life happens. So for now, like I said, it will be just myself. Um, So I'm sorry if it gets kind of boring. I'll do my best to make it more interesting because I've listened to solo hosting podcasts and sometimes I love them more than the two-person interaction dialogue kind of thing. So I'll try my best, like I said, so just bear with me through it all. I'm going to try and release as many episodes as I can. Um, I'm hoping when I release this episode, there will be nine more to follow all at once. I kind of want to lay out everything, like a whole kind of season, if you will, at one time. And it'll give me time to uh, prepare for more episodes that maybe I can do on a weekly basis. I'm still kind of a busy person and I'm not sponsored by anybody yet, so I can't just make this my full-time job or I don't even know how that works. Do people get sponsored or do they just be like, hey, we'll pay to have advertising? I'm not really sure how that works. You can see how uh, much of a novice or whatever, rookie, yada, yada, I am, whatever adjective you want to put in there Um, or adjective, would it be noun? Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, So until then, I don't have, you know, a huge amount of time on my hands to dedicate to this. It's taken me a very long time to even get all of these episodes together. Excuse me. And so, um, yeah, I don't really know what my point was. But anyway, my first case that I want to go over, and it's one that's really uh, important to me because I spent, like I said, a lot of time kind of going into all of these. And this was... When I first kind of started looking into what kind of theme do I want to have for this podcast and what do I really want to talk about, do I want to do all the common cases because they're still interesting and people still want to hear the different perspectives or, you know, should I try and find, you know, some obscure ones? Like there's a podcast, I believe it's called like Small Town Murder, and I absolutely love it because it's really cool. You never, literally never hear about these cases because it's population 300, population 80, population 2,500, so on and so forth. And so I liked those cases, but I also kind of wanted it to be more specific than that. I To fit into the true crime genre of podcasts these days, they're so popular, especially the comedic ones, even the serious ones. You know, it's um, hard to kind of make your mark, I guess. Uh, and I have no idea if... Being specific about Texas cases will even help me make a mark, but it was something that I found ironic with my within myself. I'm not a huge fan of Texas. I've lived here my whole life. um, and I just don't. I'm not really thrilled with my experience so far. And so to um, turn one of my interests and my hobbies into, or excuse me, I guess, roll, let me switch that around, to turn my home state into the forefront and focus of my biggest hobby. Um, and it's, you know, the state I don't like. It's I just thought it was a bit ironic and I don't know, whatever. You learn lessons and it's kind of funny when it's your own self, but no one cares, you don't even know me. So um, back to what I was saying uh, when I first started researching what cool cases, at least in Houston, because that's where I currently live, Um, in Houston, what happened here and what are some cold cases, uh, what are some infamous ones, things like that. And this was one that um, was on the popular list for sure. Um, But the more I read about it, um, I really just got like super attached. So it is the unsolved murders of Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson. And again, this case just really spoke to me. The more and more I researched it and I just became really invested in their murders. It's still an open case. And so information um, was somewhat hard to find. You know, there was a bunch of articles written on the case, but I can't just go up to, you know, the courthouse and be like, hey, can I see these records? Because it's still open. Um, But hopefully one day it will be solved. So I will just jump right in. And I hope you guys enjoy. So I am going to start out kind of backtracking a little bit. Um, I'm going to start out with a woman, and I'm just going to call her Sarah. Um, This is not her real name, but for the sake of the conversation, I'll be calling her that. Um, Her name was left out of the documents that I could find and the articles that I could find on the case. So in 1990, Sarah was a dancer at a Houston topless club called Gigi's. Um, She is reported leaving her job around 2 in the morning, and she returned to her boyfriend's home. Um, He was a pilot, and he was actually currently out of town. So Sarah is quoted to say that she was just alone at the house for the evening, hanging out, and um, she decided to go to bed. So she went upstairs to her bedroom, and she saw a large man come out from her doorway. And um, she said he had uh, black gloves on and he had fishnets over his face. And she seemed to remember that his clothing kind of matched pretty perfectly. And she said it might have actually been some type of uniform, the way that it looked and how uniform (laughs) it actually seemed to be. Um, I can only imagine that sort of feeling, seeing that. That's got to be absolutely terrifying. But she said that he carried a large long-barreled handgun in his left hand, and then he proceeded to ask her, quote, where's Randy, which is the name of her boyfriend. Uh, He taunted her for quite some time while also restraining her with duct tape, and he also stole, you know, whatever cash she had in her purse or whatever she probably made that night. Um, He never shot shot her or injured her past, you know, obviously the rape and the aggression therein, um... But he left her and he said that I could be in the house for five minutes or an hour, so don't move. Um, Years later, she gives a description to a forensic artist and describes him as six feet tall, mid-30s, 180 pounds, brown hair and brown eyes, a possible mustache, and olive complexion. Um, So DNA was taken from her rape kit back then. And it would later be a major connection to a double homicide just several weeks later. So when I say that she was interviewed years later, um, it'll come into play and you'll understand sort of where this all kind of fits in. Um, and that is just kind of the little precedent that I'll leave you with, and I'm going to jump into this double murder that her that the DNA from her rape kit, you know, is connected to. So in the summer of 1990, In Houston, Texas, a young couple went on a date, and they were brutally killed uh, shortly thereafter. The victims, like I said, um, they were Cheryl Henry and Andy Atkinson, and their murders, I feel like this is the, I don't know, most overused and kind of outdated phrase, but they were labeled the Lover's Lane murders, Um, and I'll explain why I kind of have a problem with that later, but um, it was Cheryl, she was 22, and Andy was only 21. They had actually only met just a few weeks uh, prior to their deaths, and Cheryl was home on summer break. She was a student at Stephen F. Austin University, and Andy had just returned to Texas. He was living in North Carolina for a while, and he moved back, and he had gotten a job at Gold's Gym, which that's so cool. Like, I remember seeing those in the 90s. I don't even know. I'm sure that there's still a few around, but I don't know if it's a Texas thing. I guess I should look it up. They're probably everywhere, and I'm just a fucking idiot, but whatever. Um, I don't know why I thought that was interesting, but they, um, she had actually previously worked at a place called Rick's Cabaret, although, like, I couldn't find if she was currently employed there or anywhere, honestly, um, or, you know, what she was up to if she was just there for summer break or what, but... There again, there is a strip club reference that will come into play later. We saw that you know Sarah had worked at a um, gentleman's club, and also Cheryl had at some point too. Um, anyway, they agreed to go on a double date with Cheryl's sister, Shane, and the place was called Bayou Mamas, and it was located back then around the Gessner Westheimer area of Houston, which those are two main you know streets here in Houston. If you're from this area, you'll probably know. If you're not, then I know you don't care, but it's kind of weird to just put it into your perspective, I guess, if you live here. Um th- they met at this bar and they all just kind of spent the evening hanging out. Um I actually did look this place up and I found that like I don't I don't even know if this is true or not. I could have the completely wrong place, but I found some like really weird pictures of like David Cassidy and um What's that guy's name? Donnie. O- is it Donnie Osmond? Is that his name? I'm probably butchering that. Uh, Donnie and Marie. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was weird. I think they performed there at one point in time. So it maybe was kind of a big deal back then. But anyway, they all left about 1130 that night. And Shane is quoted saying that they seemed, you know, smitten or infatuated with each other. Kind of that new love, young, you know, blossoming relationship shit that is so fun when you're in it and everyone around you that is experiencing it is either jealous or nauseated or like a combination jazzyated. I don't know. But um, she said that she even states, you know, go get a room to them at one point, which I guess was kind of a cool saying back then. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if it still is. But uh, she remembers hugging and kissing her sister goodbye as they always did. And that that would actually be the last time she would ever speak to Cheryl. So the following morning, we'll kind of fast forward here. A guard doing his usual patrol of his area. He just stumbles upon an unoccupied Honda Civic. And this is kind of where the scene begins for everything. Um, some reports, and it doesn't, it would make more sense if he was just a random guard. Because if he was an actual police officer, you'd think that he would be able to call the uh, incident in. But from what I can tell, my point is that I've seen different reports of he was just like a security guard versus a policeman my opinion is is that since he there is a reported police call that was placed he was most likely not a police officer he was a security guard calling the police that was a dumb tangent just wanted to clarify I could be wrong but probably not um by that time um that they find the car the parents of both of them um they had gotten word that neither of them had shown up to their uh respective jobs that day Um, which makes me think, okay, Cheryl did have a job, but it's just not reported. I'm not really sure. But anyway, the families do report Cheryl and Andy missing, and um, the car plates were called in, and the guard was told that it did belong to a missing person. Um, I've seen reports saying that it was Cheryl's. I've also seen reports saying that it was Andy's, and from what I've researched, I personally believe it was Andy's based on um, everything that has been stated. But anyway, it could have just been a typo. The car was empty, although some reports state that Cheryl's shoes and her bag were on the floorboard of the passenger seat, which would mean that Andy was driving. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe I don't know. I don't want to go into that whole hypothetical theory. But anyway... The seats were slightly reclined, and there was actually a cassette tape in the deck leading, you know, the investigators to believe that the couple was either, you know, relaxing or being intimate in the vehicle, possibly both. Um, The area the car was found in was extremely secluded. It was this weird industrial park with this wooded area nearby. Um, I couldn't find, and this is where I can go into where the lover's lane thing, uh, I couldn't find if this was actually a well-known makeout spot or like popular spot for, you know, young people to actually frequent. So that's why I think it's kind of lame that it was called the lover's lane murders. Like, I don't think you have to label that kind of stuff. It just, I don't know. It makes them sound for, to me, there's a negative connotation to that term, which I totally get it. You want to go make out, you want to go make out. That's fine. But There is a connotation, and it is negative. And if you don't think so, then you're in denial. Um, I don't know. That's just my opinion, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Again, I couldn't find out if this area was actually well-known for that or not. But however, seeing, you know, that both of them lived with their families, going home to have some romantic time probably, you know, wasn't ideal. So they obviously, they went elsewhere. Um, The police arrive with a canine unit. And shortly, maybe not shortly, but, you know, during the search, they finally find Cheryl and um, she was found face down laying underneath a bunch of uh, wooden slats that had been placed on top of her. She was bound with rope and she had appeared to have been killed by having her throat slit. And she was actually only found about 600 feet from the car. Um, there were three slash marks along her neck and her clothes were also cut off. And I found one report that also said that her underwear was found in, um, the pocket of her jeans. She had also been raped. So, uh, fuck man, like that's kind of heavy. It says that they found her closer to midnight of that day. It's weird if she was only 600 feet from the body or from the car. Um, I don't know. Maybe the reports are wrong, but some of that kind of sounds weird to me. I guess it doesn't really matter anymore. They did find her, but it just seemed kind of strange if she was supposedly so close, but whatever. Um, Some weird things that, and they're just placed, oddly placed, and they're seen around her body. Um, This part is what really, not that... um, (laughs) Sorry, this is going to sound kind of rude. Not that the murder sounded basic in any shape or form. It's still awful. But this is what really got me interested because this was just so weird to me. I have never really heard about... I mean, you hear about maybe things left behind by serial killers. But that's always like in movies, you know. It's not even like the big ones that you hear about in history today. Um, So finding odd things at a crime scene that are clearly deliberately placed there i think it's interesting so they found a single golf club and three golf balls pointing in the direction of cheryl's remains um supposedly a 20 bill was also found lying next to her not just like crumpled up or anything but like flat out next to her in plain sight as well as And sorry, again, I only found this in, I think it was a Web Sleuths article, so it could be wrong. Um, But there was supposedly this pretty haunting visual of deflated balloons that had been caught in the limbs of the tree that Cheryl was under. Um, And Cheryl's younger twin siblings, only being five at the time, would actually spend what was supposed to be their first day at school at her funeral. I thought that was a tidbit of interesting information. Um, Andy was found the following day bound to a tree, uh, several hundred feet from Cheryl. His hands were tied around the back of the tree with rope and, um, his throat had been also, also had been slashed. No sexual assault was identified with Andy, but his throat, however, was actually cut so severely that he was basically decapitated. Um, and his watch and money actually remained on his person, which ruled out, um, you know, potential robbery as motive according to the police, but the only evidence that, um, really can be found in this is that there was a report of a small amount of blood in the car, but I can't find any information on, you know, if the analysis, the analysis of it or what investigative work went into its processing. So I really don't know what was done with it. Um... So, Detective Billy Belk, uh, he is one of the detectives that worked the case back in 1990. And um, basically, they don't have any leads. They have no murder weapon. They don't have cameras. They don't have anything. Like I said, they only have this awful crime scene, but and a smidgen of blood and some weird circumstances and freaking golf balls lying around. So, they have nothing to go on um, and... In 2008, he, Billy Belk, gets a phone call regarding the DNA found from Cheryl's rape kit that was taken in 1990. So um, the crime occurred, you know, when DNA testing wasn't exactly a thing. It wasn't, you know, until many years later that they could actually test it. And in 2002, the Houston DNA lab, one of them, I don't know if it was private or like the police DNA lab. I don't really know how that works. Um, They were, you know, starting to do testing from cases prior and to see if, you know, new leads or arrests could be made due to this, you know, technological advancement. And um, basically this whole lab shuts down. Oh my gosh, you guys. So I literally... (laughs) I got really far in recording this and the fucking GarageBand application shut down on me. It literally like from where if you're listening, obviously, because you'll hear this like it stopped right then and like uh, just two seconds ago talking about the DNA stuff. So fuck me. I have to start over, but it's okay. I'll try and breeze through it, but not too quickly because I don't want you guys to miss anything um hmm where was i let's see so the dna like i was saying the dna lab it shuts down okay so they end up taking it to a different one and remarkably they receive these results and the test comes back with a complete match between the murders of cheryl or excuse me the rape of cheryl and the rape of sarah uh two months prior and the detective working the case was Detective Billy Belk, and he had been retired for only one week when he got the phone call um, about this rape kit coming back as a match. And in kind of shitty uh, sentence structure, he says, quote, that was one of the few cases over my career that I didn't solve that I really wanted to solve really bad. I've gone all over the country chasing down leads on the case and every one of them ending in a dead end, End quote. So, you know, it kind of shows you that just because it's an open case doesn't mean, you know, because they can't give us information doesn't mean that they don't have anything. So he had been searching and working on this case for so long and gone, you know, across the country, like you said, searching and hunting down leads and suspects and information. So at least, you know, that's good news, I guess, that it wasn't a total cold case like from the get-go there was an odd development in 2009 so an anonymous note was actually received by the police stating that if you um, want to know who killed c henry and a atkinson it will cost you a hundred thousand dollars They were told to reply in the classified section of the March 12th, 2001 Houston Chronicle and warned, quote, a lawyer will be hired. Make sure you play straight, end quote. And the word you was actually spelt with the letter U. So that's that. And um, a reply was actually given by the police, but no response was ever received. So that was a big old fake flop there. Um, And honestly, that's kind of it. That was all the information that I could personally find on the case. Um, And I'm going to kind of move into my questions slash theories about the case. Um, Again, it is an open case, so I don't have all this information. If I did, I wouldn't be talking about it. I mean, I probably still would be talking about it, but these wouldn't be my questions slash theories. So I would, first off, I would want to know more about the blood, you know, whose it was, where was it found in the car? Um, You know, was it on the ceiling, on the floor, in their chairs? Which chair did they find a blood type? Were they non-secretors? 85% of the population are secretors. So non-secretors are in a minority. That would definitely help kind of narrow down who this could be. Um, I want to know, you know, was there a possible profile made of this killer and what might it have entailed? You know, because they can narrow. And maybe this is just in a serial killer case where they have more, uh, you know, murders or incidents to work off of for information. But, you know, I, I feel like there are still the solo or maybe potentially double kind of situations where they have at least a little bit of information to make a profile. You know, they can narrow it down to white 33 year old male or 30 to 35 male, you know, um, doesn't have a car because he lived here forever and has to walk everywhere and so he knows the area and this is where he's been killing and lives with his mother is very intelligent you know what I mean they can I would want to know maybe who this kind of person was um and let's see what else did they ever find a murder weapon or at least try and analyze you know the slash wounds to see what type of weapon was used was it a knife a machete glass box cutter straight razor or whatever Um, maybe you've seen it a million times on so many shows or newspaper, whatever cases, um, that they can compare, like this blade would have fit here. This blade wouldn't have fit here. The, you know, um, what's it called? The, you know, I'm talking about the shape of the bottom of the knife. (laughs) That's going to bug me. Um, man, everyone's probably shouting at me right now. That's so fucking frustrating because I'm normally the one doing that serrations. Thank you. Uh is it serrations? Serrated. Yeah, the serrated knife. Okay. Sorry. Just had to get that over with. It, you know, see what kind of weapon was used is my point. Um from what I can tell, uh you know, maybe they did find a weapon, a murder weapon, I don't know, but obviously if they did, it didn't help further the investigation, clearly. Um, I'm gonna get into kind of my theories here and there will be more questions that I ask within this, but I will go on some tangents because it's kind of a lot of information. So I personally feel like there are a few theories, but really only one makes sense because it literally has to because the DNA matched both of these cases. Now, with that being said, there are so many variations of how this went down and why Um, and I'll just get right into it. So maybe one thing is, is that maybe the killer knew both of the women. Okay. Sarah and Cheryl, maybe not on a friendship level or even an acquaintance level, but maybe in sort of an observer sense, maybe, um, he knew them from the strip club realm. So we actually find out that all three of them, you know, are, they do have had ties to the strip club you know, situation, Sarah and Cheryl, they were dancers. And then we find out that Andy actually worked as a doorman at a club that his father had managed. So I think that that connection with the women is kind of, it's too difficult to ignore. You know, it shows at least an origin or a baseline of why these people are picked. Um, If you take into account that Sarah's case involved him knowing her boyfriend's name, it could possibly mean, you know, maybe he scouted her out for some time, gathered information on her to just, you know, scare her. But it also, literally, it could also mean, like, he simply got lucky, you know. He saw there weren't any cars in the driveway or whatever. um, And then snuck in, broke in waited for her to get home, saw a piece of mail in her room or around the house with Randy's name on it, and decided to give her a scare. I really don't know, but if he scouted her out, you know, it would make it easier to plan, you know, entering her home before she got home. He would knew when she worked and when he wouldn't be there because he knew his schedule, Randy's schedule, so I don't know. Um, But when it comes to Cheryl and Andy, maybe again, he scouted out Cheryl saw she was on a date and followed them out to the, you know, abandoned area. Perhaps he was an old infatuated customer that became kind of upset when he saw her with another man, hence why Andy's murder seemed, you know, so much more rage-filled than Cheryl's. And hers, you know, it included the acts of undoing and remorse. Uh, Even though her death was still brutal, those situations where you see, Uh, You know, uh, you depict undoing our cases that usually the suspect and victim know each other in some capacity or it's, you know, a child or a female. Um, I I don't know. I got that vibe, though, for sure. Um, Since there was no eyewitness, you know, we can't know if the suspect dressed or looked the same like the same as Sarah's. Uh, we do know some differences though. So duct tape was used in Sarah's rape, but plain rope was used in Cheryl and with Cheryl and Andy, a gun was brought to the assault on Cheryl, but a blade, you know, of some kind was used on Cheryl and Andy. So MO alone diversifies these two cases. But like I said before, DNA, it doesn't lie. Okay. So if you want to say that maybe Sarah's lying and, Uh, She got pissed at some guy and decided I did have consensual sex with him, but I'm pissed at him. So I'm going to claim it as rape. But then still, it's like she's not getting him caught because she's not she could have she if she wanted to get him in trouble, she would have just said who it was if it was all a scheme. Do you know what I mean? So then the only other option would be. Well, did Cheryl have sex with someone random before she went on a date with Andy? And it was someone completely different that killed them? I don't know. I don't know what she did earlier that day. But if Sarah seems pretty legit, you know what I mean? Because if she was trying to just get some guy in trouble with the law and fake getting raped she would tell them this is who did it so we would know if this was maybe the kind of guy that Cheryl would be sleeping with before a date with Andy and I don't know how Cheryl does her did her life I don't know if she slept around I don't know if she was kind of a you know one guy woman I don't know but that doesn't seem very likely to me that she just went and had a random hookup before she went on a date with someone else just my opinion um Sarah remembers her rapist carrying the gun in his left hand. And I wonder if they were able to deduce, you know, from which direction Cheryl and Andy's throats were slit. So, you know, depending on your handedness, you would start from one side or the other, either from behind or in front. Um, And so I wonder if they figured that out, because perhaps maybe he had the gun in his left hand to keep his more dominant hand available for movement and coercion. Maybe. Um, maybe the gun wasn't even fucking loaded, you know, I mean, he never even shot it. So maybe it was all for show and to just assert control. Um, And lastly, you know, the fact that he took cash from Sarah, but not from Cheryl and Andy is odd as well. Um, If the whole incident started in the car where there is blood, um, they got out of the car regardless if if it was forced or if it was from their own free will. But Guaranteed, it was forced, most likely. I can't say guaranteed because I don't fucking know. But I'm pretty sure it was a forced situation. They probably saw her bag in the car. They could have even gone back after they killed them and gotten some stuff out of the bag, and they didn't. And again, like I stated earlier, Andy's watching while it was still on him. So let me go into this more than one uh, killer theory which is not my fave to be perfectly honest with you Um, i think it's a little far-fetched but um the theory is sort of that you know more than one person was needed in to help in the submission of two victims but again the odds of that to me are slim Um, and this is why, so if you are a person and you can find an accomplice to help you subdue and murder two people, that's, uh, that's fairly impressive to me. So you're risking, you know, not only your DNA, your, um, anything you bring along to the crime scene, um along with someone else's. You have their DNA, their hair, their fuck ups. If something goes wrong, they're now a part of it as well. So if it's just you, maybe you could handle it a little bit more, um, the way you want it and make sure it goes according to plan. But you're risking them you know they they you're risking them talking in the future you know telling someone getting drunk and saying something to their wife or whomever and then that person telling and so on and so forth so it's kind of it's risky but you can it's been done um as we know so it's not completely too far-fetched to find someone else to help you with this but i guess my point is that um there's only one hit of dna not two so if You can get someone to help you kill someone Then they're probably okay with the rape as well and might possibly want to be involved in that rape Um, I could be wrong, you know, there are killers out there that are like I would never rape anyone I just kill people and then there's rapists out there that think oh my gosh I could never kill someone. I just rape people. I know that's not verbatim what they say, but those are some theories, you know um That or not theories those are some statements that i've heard from certain types of uh criminals so, um I, I don't think that it would be that easy to, in this case, have two people in the murder of Cheryl and Andy. Um, the only possible thing that I could think of is that the person who was truly infatuated with Cheryl um, spent most of their time killing Andy because, like I said before, his murder was so um, much more aggressive um, and so maybe he was really mad at Andy and took out his anger on him while the friend or whatever, you know, did his thing with Cheryl. And that's who raped her. And that's who also raped Sarah. So maybe it was a completely we're focused on the guy who, you know's DNA that we have um, as the main perpetrator here but in Cheryl and Andy's case maybe it was someone completely different who had his his sights set on Cheryl and just so happened to pick a guy that had raped someone before and decided to tag along Uh, and it was just a friend who was into the same shit I don't know Um, but that's a possible case and especially since you know she was raped but then she did have her throat slit, but not in the manner that Andy did. And her, you know, her body was covered up, um, with the wood and the slats or whatever that, like I said before shows undoing. So maybe that part was done by the guy who killed Andy and felt some remorse about Cheryl dying and, you know, wanted to cover her up because he did like her. I I don't know, some fucked up way. It is also, you know, concerning because since the two cases are connected, um, you know, this person potentially, if you don't want to think of it in the theory of that the rapist of Sarah was the tag along to Cheryl and Andy's murder, um, if he's the main guy in both cases, it's scary to think that he can go from a break-in and rape to a double murder and rape in such a short amount of time. Um... It was just a couple months in between, you know what I mean. So if I don't know, I think that's a pretty quick escalation. I could be wrong, you know. It maybe it can happen fast depending on your personality and your mental status. Uh, I really don't know the um, the psychology behind that, and if there is an average escalation of. Technique and, um, capability with your, you know, crime intent or what have you. Um, <clears throat> also, you know, if the killer was on the lookout to, you know, attack a couple and he was at the same bar earlier in the evening and, and, you know, didn't know Cheryl and Andy, um, why didn't he pick, you know, Cheryl's sister Shane and her date? Why did it have to be Cheryl and Andy? Um, so, because it's kind of like, well, how did he know that they were going to be going somewhere secluded? You know, that's a pretty, it's a raises a really big question there, you know, and maybe he didn't know and he didn't care. Maybe this was kind of what he did with, you know, Sarah and Randy. He saw them out at a bar on a date and decided to follow them home. And that's where he sort of started his scouting method, if you will. Um, And this time it didn't turn out that way. This time they didn't go home. And he just ended up following them because he was so, you know, headstrong on the fact that he wanted to figure out who this girl was and so on and so forth. Um, And maybe, you know, he missed out on the thrill of having Randy there the first time. And this time he thought, okay, there's a guy there and I'm going to finally get to take my aggression out on this dude. And this is where the switch up comes in. And this is where his MO change comes in. It could happen on the drive there. I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe he was already there. You know, this is the other sort of theory within this is that he was just a random person at... You know, they were there at the wrong place, wrong time, kind of thing. This guy was just in the neighborhood and it just happened. You know, crime of opportunity or crimes of opportunity um, do happen. Um, not many cases that I've researched or read about or listened about or watched on TV. Is it a crime of opportunity? Um, is, or excuse me, is a crime of opportunity? Let me get untongue tied here. Um, but you know it does happen so the thing is is that you know if this type of killing was what this person enjoyed you'd think that there would maybe be more than one attack slash murder in that area um and i i don't know if Ah, uh, it's just hard to d- say because it was an occupied area. You know what I mean? It was an industrial park. It was a business area. There were buildings. They were occupied by people. I mean, fuck, there was a guard there in the morning. So it wasn't necessarily, I mean, they say abandoned in an article, but I think it just meant sort of uh, not very occupied but I could be wrong. Maybe it was abandoned and the building still was owned by someone and they did have a guard there to deter, you know, homeless people or, um, looting or, um, burglary, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know, but it could have been an occupied area and wasn't maybe it was vacant on the weekends. I I don't know, but I never read anything that connected, you know, post or previous to or prior to this murder so for me I don't think that there was a random person there I think that they were followed but that's I could be wrong I could be missing a huge chunk of evidence and information that I just don't know about um, I also keep wondering you know how has this killer not been caught by now if you can kind of gather and grasp the concept that he escalated so fast from Sarah to Cheryl and Andy you'd think that he wouldn't stop but um I don't don't feel and I could be wrong there I'm sure there are people that have only killed once or twice and stopped but like I said the escalation process shows at least a uh, heavy level of confidence and determination so for him to stop cold turkey um is kind of not very likely to me. I don't think that he could really, you know, did he just commit the original rape and then the murders and then never commit a crime again? Did he commit more rapes and murders and the bodies were just never found or DNA evidence was never, you know, retrieved? I just don't think that it would be, it's just not likely to me. I think that either he moved out of state, changed his M.O. again and got away with stuff because or got maybe more advanced in his killings. You know, I'm sure that this case was on the news when it happened. And even though DNA wasn't a thing, like I said, um, rape kits were obviously still done. And um, he... I don't know, because, I mean, maybe people back then didn't think, oh, they have a rape kit. That means that they have my DNA. I mean, I know DNA was clearly a topic of conversation and people knew what it was. But I also don't know when it really started coming into play in crimes. So it may not have really made him stop and think, oh, fuck, I left my DNA you know, at the crime scene, I'm going to get caught or maybe I should start wearing a condom or maybe I should, you know, you know, what I, mean? I, I don't know if that really went through that person's mind. Um, but because of the, you know, MO shift, there's no connection, you know, between these cases necessarily um, because, you know, like I said, it was a rape and a break in versus now slitting throats and rapes and murder, you know, two people, not just one out in the middle of nowhere unplanned like it's it's a big change so he could have gone and changed it yet again in a different state for all we know Um, even if he was arrested for like a simple DUI at least you know say today his DNA would be taken and if this case is consistently worked You know, I don't know how often they do retesting and, you know, they go through, I'm assuming now, you know, you get a DNA swab or whatever when you're booked, they will run it through CODIS at some point. I don't know if it's that night. I don't know if it's that week, that month, that year, whatever, before you go to trial for whatever crime you committed or whatever, Um, but they would have found out this guy, is a match to these crimes, and he, none of that has ever happened. So it's like he literally fell off the face of the earth. So, I mean, I'm not saying that he uh, got a DUI and it just didn't match, but he literally did nothing to where he would have been arrested and processed far enough to have his DNA compared to anything in the database, um, which is kind of crazy, you know, because either he literally did stop. Or he just got savvy enough to where he left nothing behind to or nothing substantial enough behind to lead back to him <clears throat> in other cases, at least. Um, you know, I said that he escalated so fast and I wonder if, you know, a de-escalation is a possibility. I've never really heard anyone talk about that kind of stuff. Did he kind of get spooked that he was going to get caught and it really did scare him to stop? Um you know like i said did he just up his killing technique um it's hard for me to imagine you know this kind of person to just stop doing what he does um but you know perhaps you know he himself maybe he got killed i don't know maybe he got i don't know there's he couldn't be in jail because we would have figured that out by now but anyway i'm going to digress off of that but Basically, both of these cases are just full of really odd and circumstantial evidence, but um, not even circumstantial, but just strange and kind of like vague and general evidence. So I feel like the only true evidence is the most reliable of all, you know, the DNA. And I, I don't know what happened to this, you know, probably really sweet couple that was on this, you know, new adventure of dating, but I just hate that it's still unsolved you know and um they say that there might be another case connected um to these other two and it was a disappearance of a strip club cocktail waitress her name was tara breckenridge and this is in 1992 um honestly so far her body's actually just never been found um she's just missing at this point in time um and I realized that the only connection to these cases is that she worked at a gentleman's club, but it is in the same area of town and it was only two years after the others. So maybe he laid low for a while and then decided it was time to, you know, get back out there and try it again. Um, but she, again, she, her body has never been found, which leads to the question of, you know, the escalation of his crimes and his technique and his advancements, um, and his sophistication therein, um. But I guess we'll never know. Um, Like I said before, Detective Sergeant Billy Belk is now retired and he has his own law firm here in Houston, Texas. And um, Detective Michael Miller has been handed down the case after Belk's retirement. And it has been 27 years since their deaths. And it's truly unfortunate. And I wish that it could be solved uh, i really wish we had some more answers i'm sure the family does too they've been without their children and their sisters and brothers for sister and brother sorry for you know quite some time and it's um it's really sad to see that there are those cases that have so much going for them in a sense but so little at the same time and so i I wonder what it would take to get it to one day be solved, but I guess we'll have to just wait and see. Thank you guys again for listening to this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know that it's kind of all over the place. Honestly, I'm probably not going to do too much editing to it because I kind of want it to just be my sort of free flow of candid thoughts and sentences, I guess, whatever. Um, And I hope I wasn't too all over the place and I'll try and do better next time. I'm already apologizing for something that maybe you guys actually don't even have a problem with. Um, anyway, the next few episodes, I have several that are about girls and I do have one so far that is about a man. Um, I guess women are just, um, more apt to be killed here in Texas. I don't know, but, um, Again, thank you so much for listening. Please follow me at Insta- um, on Instagram at Texas1031podcast. Again, there it's all spelled out, lowercase letters, no dashes, no uh, spaces, nothing like that. And um, hopefully I will be able to get the next episodes up here pretty soon. And you guys can keep tuning in. Um, y'all have a good day I don't know how should I end this I need to have a little slogan I mean I kind of thought about it but um I couldn't really think of anything interesting so if you guys have any suggestions of like sign-offs or whatever um feel free to let me know but for now I guess I'll just say happy Halloween